ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. And over there on the other side of the room, it is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm your museum programs representative here. And uh, we're really excited to have a, uh, a speaker here with us tonight for the speaker series. As you're uh, hearing this, uh, it's being recorded um for an evening program. Uh, but uh, today we have uh, Damon Reby with us. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, flying in the agricultural world, something that I don't think we have uh, talked much about on the show yet. No, I don't think it's ever come up on this show. We've touched on it a bit here and there in sport aviation uh, over the years. And and we'll talk a little bit about an upcoming story that you're involved in, uh, Damon. But uh, no, this is a part of aviation that uh, I think a lot of us find fascinating and a little a little mysterious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, Damon, tell us a little bit about, and I know you're your family's kind of steeped in this tradition. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in your family's, your family's history in aviation? Absolutely. So I'm actually a third-generation aerial applicator, and you'll hear me use that term a lot. That's the modern-day term for a crop duster. And um, uh, we've, uh, we are, the, the industry itself has evolved over time and turned into an actual profession. And so we like to address ourselves as aerial applicators uh, as I mentioned, I'm a third generation aerial applicator. My grandfather started our family business in 1946, and it began as a flight school. Uh, the flight school uh, was was doing pretty well, uh, but there was the shortage of students, and uh, kind of a funny story, really. My grandfather picked the largest city in southern Wisconsin that didn't already have a flight school, and uh, that was Waupon. And so he was visiting with his first student, wondering why there was so few students around to, to take flying lessons from him. And his first student, Roger, asked him, he said, now, Roy, how did you pick Wapon? So Grandpa explained his, his uh, thorough uh, process, and <laughs> Roger laughed out loud. He said, are you aware that the population of Wapan includes the prisoners? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I've got a sneaking suspicion that he may have turned ghost white at that point. <laughs> so the, uh, the crop dusting, which is what he did when he started our family's business into that part of the business, it was actually dust. He uh, added a, another J3 Cub to the fleet, uh, outfitted it with a wooden hopper, and then taught himself how to dust for local pecanners. Uh, that started in about 1950. So um, he expanded the business uh, fairly dramatically from 1950 until 1978 when he chose to retire. And at that point in time, my dad and three uncles partnered up formed Reby Sprang Service, and then they leased all of Grandpa's facilities and equipment uh, to have their own business, and Grandpa retired to a full-time job of farming. And that was uh, one of his other loves outside of, of, uh, outside of flying. Uh, my dad and uncles operated the business uh, until 2009 when my dad retired as president of the company. That's when I uh, left a corporate flying career of 15 years and came back to the family business full-time as president of Reby Sprang Service. And 
served our family business in that role until uh, until just recently. And um, in 2016, two of my other uncles were interested in retiring. And in that succession planning process, we formed another company called Dairyland Aviation. And, um, and they were able to uh, retire. And uh, I've got a cousin that stepped into the business as well as um, another uncle that I'm in business with, the youngest of those four. And um, two other people that loaded for our family that had an interest in being ag pilots that I taught to spray myself. Wow. They're now at also part owners in the company. So That's absolutely amazing. That's uh, that lineage is so is so rich and it wasn't just well my grandfather started it and got it it's i'm hearing cousins and and uncles and and people have been around and people have moved up in, in the company yeah, as well it's been it's been a lot of fun uh just a, really a great experience for our whole family um it's a it was a very rich legacy in my mind that my grandfather started and it means a lot to all of us that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I know we want to get into the the particulars, particularly sort of the, the the training and what that flying is is like. But I think before we do that, um, you mentioned your grandfather had a J three with a wooden hopper when he started. What other sort of aircraft have served the family business? Could you kind of just run down sure. what the fleet was? I that's, know that's always that's a great question. Yeah, and aviation people are always interested yeah. in those nuts and bolts. Exactly. Things, what kind of airplane is yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So he started with that J three with the wooden hopper. And then in 1953, he bought himself a brand new 135 horse Super Cub, and uh, I I actually own that aircraft, and uh, so that that Super Cub was his. That would be like my Air Tractor 802 that I fly, and I take it all over the country. He went to Kansas for bug runs. We just came across a newspaper article from 1955. He was with that airplane in Saginaw, Michigan, defoliating soybeans to prepare those for harvest, which was a, a very um, innovative practice at the time. Uh, he then expanded into Stearman's. So they took, uh, you know, Boeing Stearman's, put a 450-horse engine on the front, extended the wings, pulled the front seat out, installed a hopper, a, uh, a canopy without doors. I, I believe he operated about seven or eight of those. Uh, moved into Bell 47s. I uh, had one of those. And then eventually started buying Piper Pawnees. And that was like the Super Cub, a purpose-built aircraft. And, and really the ultimate shape of most modern design, modern aircraft uh, designs now. In the late 1970s, he bought, he actually approached Leland Snow, the owner and founder of the Air Tractor uh uh, air, uh, aircraft manufacturing company. He approached Leland about being a dealer for the air tractor line. And Leland said that these airplanes are far too large to be up north and that there would never be any need for air tractors in the north. <laughs> so with that answer, Grandpa went to a Texas dealer and bought himself an air tractor 301. So that would have been a, a 1340 powered uh, radial engined air tractor wow. with a 300 gallon hopper. And uh, over time, my dad and uncles modified those air tractors to put geared engines on the front with longer props. In uh, for the 2000 season, they then bought a couple of air tractor 502s. It was the first turbine powered 
uh, PT6 powered air tractors that we began to operate. And uh, currently we operate two air tractor 802s, one air tractor 602, uh, five, um, excuse me, uh, six air tractor 502s and then one Bell Jet Ranger. Um, I think a lot of people are interested in the horsepower ratings. The 802s are running 1,300 horse. They can carry 800 gallons. Their maximum takeoff weight is 16,000 pounds. Wow. So it's quite an aircraft that's out there uh, scooting across the field, low to the ground. Um, uh, a long way from that first J3. Yeah, My gosh. yeah exactly. That's incredible. Uh, uh, just one other quick thing. You mentioned the Pawnee. Um, was that the first purpose-built uh, air the Pawnee was not the first purpose-built aircraft. The first one was the Grumman Egg Cat. Oh, the Grumman Egg Cat came yeah, before the Pawnee. I wasn't did. sure about yeah. that. So, yep. Apologies to Gene Susie, who's yeah. out there somewhere <laughs> rolling his eyes that yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a very innovative uh, design, the Grumman Egg Cat. You know, my uh, my first uh, time seeing them, because, we, of course, we didn't have them much in the city of Pittsburgh, so it uh, <laughs> uh, was um, – Coming to the show, coming to Oshkosh, we'd pass by Elkhart, Indiana on the way, and I'd, I'd see the ag airplanes working, and then uh, years later, I went to be a controller there and got to become friends with those same guys. And the type of flying that they did was almost like their own private air show. I mean, it's very graceful. It's, it, it looks very um, planned and very intentional, each maneuver. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about like how you train for that? Well, I mean, first, what I have to do is tell you how small the industry is. So you likely met the EB family from Wakarusa. That yeah. was them. Yep, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So at, I'll have to ask you to ask the question again when I'm done telling this story because I'll have forgotten by then. But uh, uh, the there are a total of about 2,500 ag pilots that are actively flying in the entire United States. And I had a friend of mine point out, he's like, you know, I think that there are likely uh, less ag pilots than there are professional uh, football and baseball players. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to look that up. And yeah, it turns out there are a lot less ag pilots than there are uh, um, professional football and baseball players. So, But yeah, the maneuvering, yeah, it is very intentional. Uh, there, of course, obviously is a purpose to it. So we load our payload up. It could be uh, a pesticide used to control a disease or an insect or a weed in, in the field. It uh, could be fertilizer uh, to, to provide nutrients to that crop, or it could be actual cover crop seed or, or the seeding of the crop itself. So whatever that payload is, that has to be delivered on target and uniformly. And so we are um, GPS guided. Uh, there's a moving map and controller inside the flight deck of all of these aircraft. There is a light bar that's typically mounted on top of the fuselage in front of the hopper, right right near the firewall of the engine. And that, that um, light bar provides us with lateral guidance, provides us with angle of intercept information as we're performing the turn, tells us how many feet to within a foot of uh, left or right we are from our intended swath. It'll tell us our heading. It'll tell us our flow rate when we open up. And it's all outside so that we can have our head outside looking for obstructions, looking for persons near the field while we're performing the application. So the, uh, the maneuver consists of a, 
of a departure from the field and always wings level until obstructions are cleared. Depending on the radius of the turn that we have to have in order to line up with our subsequent pass, we may turn slightly away from that next swath or we may roll directly into that turn. And then during that turn, uh, in the case of the air tractor, we're deploying flaps. We're monitoring engine instruments. That's a good time to just double check the health of the airplane. We're monitoring calibration to see how, uh, how the calibration is working, if we're covered the proper number of acres with the product that we've used. And then we're also sighting back to the field with our approximate entry point and using that light bar presentation to do the fine tuning. And then entering the field over the obstruction wings level, leveling the airplane out, turning the spray on, and then tracking that light bar across the field. And we do that over and over and over again until we're pretty tired of it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or maybe until you're finished, I yeah. suppose. But, uh, <laughs> so you mentioned the uh, the light bar lets you keep your 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 eyes outside. Is that up on the top of the instrument panel or where, where yeah, physically? Yeah, the light bar is mounted outside the airplane. Oh, literally in, outside in front the airplane. Of the hopper. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. in front of the hopper, That's right above the firewall. Yeah. That's... That's really remarkable. You know, you, you wonder about that, that uh, uh, just just how do you maintain situational awareness? And apparently that's, that's a pretty big piece of it. It's a huge component of it, yeah. And we have, uh, you know, digital displays of the, of, to accurate within a gallon inside the cockpit. That's, you know, being constantly updated. The spray system is equipped with a flow control device. So we program our GPS for the exact volume of material that's supposed to be applied per acre. And then that device monitors our ground speed and compensates the flow while we're making the application so that that never varies, even as we travel into the wind and with the wind, is that we have those ground oh, speed wow. fluctuations. We have section control of our boom. So we're able to shut off the section of the boom on the, either the left or right tip, and that material is getting entrained into the wingtip vortices, so we can shut that off as we approach an edge. We can also shut off either boom for even more precise applications of our materials. Now, are you having to do all of those things manually? Are you saying to yourself, okay, I've, I've covered most of this field. I'm coming up on an edge. You know, I only need the partial boom on this. I don't want that outside, so so I'm turning that off. Or yeah, so at this time, that's all done manually. So we have, you know, it, I joke around. I kind of have a face for, for radio, so this is working out good. But I can't really <laughs> show you all what I'm going to do with my hands, right? So in the aircraft, uh, we have in our right hand the flight control stick. And then in our left hand is the spray valve. And then behind the spray valve, we have the boom selector switches, and we have methods of, of manipulating all of those valves in a manner that uh, actuates them. And we were, it's, it's remarkable, actually, how accurate the human brain can be, because these are just repeated sight pictures. So we train for this by putting people on the ground with a radio. And of course, our aircraft are equipped with radios. And so we will pass over an intended site, an intended target, a boundary, and then we'll have those folks on the ground tell us where the spray was turned on and where the spray was turned off until we can consistently uh, and very, very accurately hit that mark. Now, the industry, uh, I'm, I haven't introduced this part of my background with the 
with the industry, but I'm the um, chairman of the Government Relations Committee with the National Agricultural Aviation Association, and I serve on the EPA's Pesticide Programs Dialogue Committee. And that is a, uh, a federally appointed uh, committee where we talk about pesticide regula- regulation. And so I, um, I provide input on behalf of our industry to, uh, to the EPA and ha- am in the process of spearheading some uh, further technology developments, which would be uh, more autonomous spray systems. Right now we have the ability to do auto on off at boundaries. But at the moment, those auto on-offs aren't compensating for wind. And so we're working together with GPS manufacturers, real-time meteorological measurement system manufacturers, and another company that uh, has an individual nozzle control spray boom, which we'll be uh, experimenting with this summer on my aircraft. And so the objective is to eventually get to the point where this can happen in real time, autonomously, without the pilot's in- input. But at the moment, we do it ourselves, and um, I guess I'll brag a little bit. We're pretty good at it. <laughs> you can only imagine. Uh, if I it was just one other other question, you were, you were describing uh, your uh, valve controls and things in your left hand. Now, are those... Uh, are those? Do you have uh, buttons controls on on a throttle or totally separate from the yeah, throttle? Yeah, so the, and- the, uh, the the spray. Yeah, so it's separate from the throttle. Yeah. And so when we're out performing these applications, we have a set power setting that we're okay. using, and then it's a total management of that energy for that turnaround. Now, in the event of an emergency, of course, we would use full power if needed. But sure. the applications are made with basically a set power. As the weight comes off, the power gets reduced incrementally. But we're really not using our left hand to manipulate the power lever. We're using our left hand for the manipulation of the dispersal system itself. And I joke, you know, we 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 um, we work near near uh, near Oshkosh, and uh, Wisconsin would be considered a somewhat populated state. It's a very rich ag state, but also has a more dense population than some other ag states. And I, I tell people that I'm out there playing the piano, you know, with my left hand with the valves. <laughs> <laughs> One of the questions I had is when, and this is already very educational because I didn't know so much of this, but when I was a controller, I would watch them dust a field. And, you know, there's only so much room in, in the hopper. Or, and so they would they would kind of go through part of the field. They would come back to our airport where they'd have a truck that would refill it. When you go back, though, how do you know where to start again in the field? Like what row you left off on? Yeah, so that's all recorded in that GPS. So the GPS, is you may remember, there's that controller and moving map display inside the flight deck. So that is actually, we call it painting. So when we're making the application, that is actually painting where we have been. And then when we leave the field, there are keystrokes within our controller for saving that particular job so that we can return to that exact location and resume right where we left off. It could be that, that next load. It could be a week later. That's wow. all saved inside that computer. Wow, that's incredible. So how did Grandpa do that? Uh, that was <laughs> in 1946. Uh, well, you know, actually I can tell you because, you know, when I started in the 90s, we didn't have the the GPS units. It was a, 
up-and-coming device. It had been available for some time, but they were very, very costly. And so prior to GPS, we literally memorized where we were in the field and then uh, made a note on our paper map exactly which direction we were going and what we were lined up on. We had one of the things that my dad and uncles, uh, I'll say, I'll say they somewhat pioneered it. If they didn't pioneer it, they were early adopters. But what they did was they went to every county in the state of Wisconsin that they operated in to the ASCS office, and they got slide decks of every single square mile within those counties. And they projected those slides onto an architect's table to scale and then traced the fields on these paper maps. So you could take this map. In fact, my I believe my aunt did that most winters. That was kept her busy pretty much all winter long. But at any rate, uh, with that scale, you knew your swath width, you knew the width of the field, you knew how many passes needed, how many swaths needed to be made in that field. So you get there and you'd see that, okay, I need to make 40 passes and there are eight spaces between the telephone poles. And so I need I know that I need to make five passes between each of these telephone poles. So you'd make one alongside the telephone pole, and then you'd make one down the center of the telephone pole, and one down the other side, and then you knew you needed something in between there. And, um, and so the applications were not as uniform as when we got the GPS, but that's how it was done. And I'm guessing Grandpa probably had a grease pencil, I'm imagining, and there was probably a lot of notes on the plexiglass of that J3. <laughs> sure. That's unreal. Um, you know, my next question that's in the back of my mind is, how do you train for this? Like, what, yeah. what does the training program look like? So there isn't necessarily, I'll give you a start with the qualifications. The qualifications, you have to be a commercial pilot. You have to have a tailwheel endorsement. And then you need to pass a knowledge and skills test that's either administered by the FAA or by the chief supervisor of the 137 certificate. And that consists of understanding how to how to handle the aircraft properly, what rules when you operate under Part 137 that you're exempt from, from 91, uh, et cetera. Then you'll also need to be a certified commercial pesticide applicator in your state in whatever crop that you're going to treat, as well as most states require an aerial category uh, license as well. So those are the basic qualifications. The training process is left up to the operator that's going to hire a pilot and start one. And so I'll share our training process. So what we do is we get together uh, with, with a, a candidate that individual has to have the tailwheel endorsement and that commercial pilot certificate before we're even going to start. Um, we don't we don't, we don't want to start from scratch. And what we do is we get in a super cub together, and we'll go up and we'll master air work, just basic air work. We want that individual to be highly skilled in in maneuvering. We're going to come down and do ground reference maneuvers. We're going to do takeoffs and landings. So, so we're going to really back up and really focus on. Uh, precision and uh, proficiency to a to a level that most of these pilots at that point in time haven't been held to. Then we'll begin swath runs without any guidance of any kind. We're just going to do swath runs over the runway, and we'll go over the nuance of the swath run, the height, 
uh, control inputs. We'll that will be uh, in the in the process of doing these swath runs. We're doing egg turnarounds, um, and then eventually we'll add in some some uh, obstructions, pulling up on obstructions, coming in over obstructions. Then we'll go to pretend like we're doing a work order. And the bottom line is, we'll spend about seventy five to hundred hours in this super cub. Wow. Before the pilot is moved to a different aircraft. Uh, in our case, we still have a Pawnee, so we'll then move that applicant into the Pawnee, and we'll now they do this by themselves because there's only one seat in there, and this is observed by, on the ground by the instructor, and then that individual we communicate with via company radio. And they go up and they do air work and they do ground reference maneuvers and takeoffs and landings and swath runs, and eventually over time, after approximately 150 hours of total training, then uh, we find a field for them to spray in the middle of nowhere without an obstruction around it, without a road next to it, uh, just a, just something that is, there won't be any distractions at all. And I have them go and spray that field with water. And, uh, and by the way, this program was developed because my the training I received wasn't quite as robust and my training was dramatically more robust than my grandfather gave my dad so um it, it was fresh in my mind having learned learned to spray in 1997 that we could probably do a, a little more robust training program so we send them out the water they spray the field if that goes well we actually send it out live with the with the crop protection product and uh and that always does go well and and then we protect that individual from uh, distraction and we keep that person on those easier jobs while they develop the muscle memory and the mental math skills to keep all the balls in the air, so to speak. And um, typically two to 300 hours of that. Then we get back in the Super Cub and then we go and pretend as though we're gonna spray very complicated fields. And by then they're ready for it. And then, uh, and then they're turned loose. They are a line egg pilot at that point. So it's a heavy mentorship program done differently by all operators. But you're still talking, you know, 75 hours in the Super Cub and then hundreds of hours into it, really, before they're fully turned loose. At our, yeah, at our company, it's a, about a three-year process to be a Lion Egg pilot and a Pawnee. And, and of course, that's not where you're going to spend your career. So then there's a turbine transition. Oh, sure. And so that process backs up just a little bit. And uh, so, you know, you guys are uh, know John Hopkins very well. Absolutely. Well, his son Andy is part owner at Dairyland Aviation, and he's one of the gentlemen that I trained to spray. And from uh, from the beginning of the training until he was a line pilot in the 502 air tractor was approximately a five year period. Wow. And uh, he he's, he does a exceptional job, and um, it's uh, I, I'm quite proud to watch him fly. You know, it, it's interesting to me because I've I've never really come across those numbers or thought about it in terms of that uh, number of years commitment. And but when you see uh, ag pilots flying, you sort of you scratch your head and you're just baffled at the at the absolute precision of it, being able to hold altitude. Um, and uh, but then you're telling me, okay, well, it's really five years from from starting as a commercial pilot who's already got you know, some reasonable training under their belt and five years from there to be due. I mean, you, you could be, uh, you know, it doesn't take you that long to fly an F-16 or, or something. That's, That's exactly right. I think you bring up a great point and it is, 
it is a very, very significant commitment, and there are many opportunities in aviation that are going to happen faster and likely be more uh, lucrative. I think most people that do this have a real deep desire to do this type of flying, and they typically also have a real serious interest in agriculture. So there's a, those combined interests uh, create people who are that that are doing the work. They're very very resilient and uh, very committed to the work, and that, that that brings up. I can mention some names of people you may know, but uh, we have a a fellow that retired from working for our family. He started for our family in 1971, but he actually, I believe, started spraying in 1967. His name's Tom Heggie. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Yes. El Chuparosa, so, right? Yeah. 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 And so he he actually uh, worked for, started for my grandfather in 71. He retired at the end of the 2017 season after doing it 50-some uh, years. And so uh, this is not, uh, th- that's a, that's cert- I wouldn't say that's um, uh, commonplace per se, but one common denominator typically amongst ag pilots is they usually stop spraying because they feel that they're, it's no longer safe for them to do so. It's very rare that they retire from it because they're tired of it. <laughs> and so I think that's really just speaks a lot to the, to the draw of the type of work. Well, and you touched on that they have a deep interest in agriculture. When you are uh, a pilot in this field, do you do you have a relationship with the farmer that you're you're working with? Yeah, you do, um, and and that probably could vary based on geography. But I can just speak to our family business. We have we have just exceptional relations with our customer base. They're just amazing people. Um, Grandfather, my grandfather and my dad went up as his loader back in the early to mid 60s to start spraying green beans and potatoes in the central sands. That was part of grandpa's expansion. And he uh, talked to a handful of potato growers that didn't think that the airplane could, could control late blight. They felt that the ground equipment was the only po- way possible. And these growers agreed to give grandpa 40 acres a week of applications. So he did that and it worked exceptionally well. And these customers to this day are still our customers. Wow. So it's generational relationships. And um, and so, yeah, we do have really tight ties. We, we very much care about our customers' crop uh, at the end of the day. Uh, their success is uh, completely and directly linked to ours. Absolutely. So <clears throat> going uh, back and maybe thinking about sort of training or the proficiency piece of it, or at least just the nuts and bolts piece of it, uh, how high are you off of the crop? Sure. What is that distance between? Yeah. Is it, you know, you see somebody doing, you think, wow, he's a foot off the ground. There's, this is unbelievable. You know, and it's really deceiving now with our larger aircraft. Things just look really out of proportion where most people, uh, you know, have a thought in mind that the airplane's about the size of a Pawnee. Oh, sure. The 802 is approximately a 60-foot wingspan. Wow. Uh, in level flight, this thing's approximately 17, 18 feet tall uh, from the gear to the top of the tail. Um uh, about a 45, 50 foot long airplane. And so uh, oftentimes people think the airplane is closer than it is. Uh, but 
to answer your question, we want a boom height of approximately 10 feet, wow. which puts the wheels at approximately seven. And, uh, and interestingly enough, we have one airplane equipped with a laser altimeter, and I've put that to use uh, just, just as a, I'm just curious how consistent are we? And it is remarkable how you develop a sight picture that results in the same number on every swath. It's really, uh, I, I've been surprised. I'm like, wow, that that showed, you know, it's measured from the bottom of the wing, not the spray boom. And I'm like, that that showed 14 feet on the last pass. <laughs> Here wow. I am again. So. Well, that was actually my next question is, is with all of the equipment you've got, you must be, you know, you're measuring altitude variances. And you think back, I think back, you know, a million years ago and doing the private check ride and the PTS said, I've got to hold out to plus or minus 200 feet. And, you know, you're thinking in single digits of, of feet and holding altitude. Yeah. And it is, uh, I will say it is more intuitive with that relationship to the ground. So that does sure. help. What, what I, what I'm most proud of is, is actually our ability to track the lateral line that's invisible. You know, we're, we're tracking an invisible path and uh, doing it with this light bar. And, and uh, we, in addition to doing crop protection spraying, we also are involved in uh, forestry protection. And so we find ourselves making applications to control uh, gypsy moth or um, uh, mosquito abatement projects, et cetera. And these, these applications happen over forests and they, they refer to it in their industry as applications over featureless terrain. So you're making an application and your swath heading might be 112 degrees. It's not lined up with anything. There are no roads to look at. There's, there's nothing square in the world. It's an ocean of forest canopy. And so you come out of this turn and this is, you're, you can't uh, reference a telephone pole, a, a, a tree along the edge of the field, a fence post. You can't reference any of these things. You only have your GPS and your light bar. So everything looks the same. So uh, I, upon doing this for a little while, I was curious. I said, you know, to myself, I thought, I wonder what, what my average deviation is from the intended path. And so I took 200 random points from our as-applied uh, data logs. And at each pixel, it records what's called your cross-track error. And so I wrote down the cross track air for 200 random pixels from one day of flying and averaged 1.4 feet from the intended target. Oh wow. And so uh, it's- <laughs> I can't even do that on a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really amazing. It's uh, uh, when, when you're out watching this, you, you know, there's just so much technology and nuance that's actually happening in real time at a, at a, at a fast rate and uh, is being done to, with, the, with a surprising degree of technology utilization and precision. Wow. That's really, that's really mind blowing. That 1.4 feet, I can't get over that. That is a, yeah, that is crazy. So let me ask, out of the fleet of aircraft, why the helicopter? Like, What does the helicopter, where would you want to use that over a fixed wing aircraft? That's a great question. So a lot of crops and certain, particularly certain pests on certain crops are actually require aerial application to control them effectively. And so when we have a field that is nestled up, say, to a subdivision, or it butts up to some other sensitive site that we are, it's illegal for us to fly over with our fixed wing aircraft, we then have the helicopter to go in and make the turns within the boundaries of the field, get that field treated, 
in a in a safe and and legal manner. So that's why that helicopter is there. If we didn't have it, those applications would have to be made by ground, and there are significant consequences to that. Um, I can just give an example in the case of potato production. Many of Wisconsin's potatoes are raised for to be made into potato chips. And so part of the contract arrangements that these potato growers have is they have to deliver potatoes year round. So some of these potatoes that we're gonna spray might be stored for nearly 10 months. And if they get any late blight spores in the tuber, that singular tuber will destroy an entire warehouse of potatoes. When the ground rig passes through the field, it tears the leaves, creates an infection point, it can drag the disease to the next field, and so it creates lots of complication in controlling that pest. So our, our customers recognize that, so they're, they're very interested in making sure that their crops don't get touched by ground equipment. I never knew that. That is wild science. That yeah, I, yeah, that's just amazing. It's, yeah. a, it's a little off topic from the flying end of it, no? but really the agriculture end of it is more maybe more fascinated than the flying side. That yes. is... I don't think I will ever look at uh, at this the same. Yeah, I mean, this is this is really fantastic. And now I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, we don't have a sponsor right now, so if anyone from Frito Lay is listening, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> you know, we're we're doing a good plug for 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 chips. Um, so this is a question that uh, I I almost don't want to to ask, but I'm curious for your take on it, uh, Dan, and that is. Um, you know, you're already you, you've got so much technology in the in the cockpit, and you know you're m- marrying that technology with the uh, with the the judgment and dedication and passion of the human pilot. Um, but you're talking about something. Okay, well maybe we're going to add a little bit of autonomy into the into the cockpit. Do you see a time? When uh, when we won't have pilots and not probably not in these aircraft, but when we're seeing multicopters or something else out there just doing this on their own. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So I don't expect that that is likely to occur at scale, and the reason for that is is the the advantage to the current UAS platform is that it is small, and the uh, once that platform becomes very, very large, the aerodynamic characteristics of a multi-rotor device can create lots of uh, vortices and disturbances that and can actually increase drift. So we're kind of stuck at a, at a slightly smaller scale. And at what, when these hoppers are small, it requires lots of them, which requires lots of refilling which requires lots of people. And so one of the big problems we have in agriculture is finding labor. I don't have a problem really finding a pilot. I have a problem finding a mixer loader. And so now we're in a scenario where we're gonna, we're gonna need magnitudes more of these individuals to load the units in the trailer, drive them to the next site, get them out, get them operating, get them filled, reload them, at that pace, and 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 so I don't think there's a very very uh, excellent niche for these smaller devices, but I don't see how they can successfully operate at scale with say an eight gallon tank versus an eight hundred gallon tank. Right. 
And so um, I think every golf course in the country should have two of them. Um, <laughs> you know, they they're, could be utilized for, for turf and ornamental applications, uh, specialty crops that are raised in really small plots. It's an ideal uh, platform, uh, smaller irregular shaped fields. It's an ideal platform, but getting across the, uh, you know, unimaginable number of acres that we have to is is probably in my mind not practical and part of the reason why we haven't went down that road at our company and you know it, it's I, maybe i'm dating dating myself but uh it's hard to imagine um ever being you know being fully comfortable thinking that whatever this big machine is that's roaring low over the field uh, would not have uh, a, a human pilot. And I, I think, you know, better or for worse in, in a few generations, whether there's any impact in your industry or not, and I, I certainly would would predict there wouldn't be, but I think you're going to find more and more people say, well, I'd rather trust the computer than the person. Yeah. But uh, I'm of an era where, where uh, boy, I want, uh, you know, I want you in that, that, that seat and be able to make the judgment and to to deal with that unanticipated obstruction or whatever it is. If you really get to the nuts and bolts of it, if you take a, a crewed aircraft with an autonomous spray system, you've blended ultimately the, the best of both worlds. From my vantage point, I can see if there are people on the right of way alongside of the application site. If I'm standing a half mile away, on the wrong side of the cornfield, there's no way I can see what's on the other side of the cornfield because I can't see through the cornfield, right? So there's there really is a safety factor by having that individual in the airplane with the payload. So I, I agree with that. Have you ever uh, found yourself having to uh, to uh, board a swath and, and sort of well, I got to turn off the spray because there is somebody out there. Oh, it's it's a regular occurrence. Public service announcement: If you see a spraying, don't park next to the field. <laughs> you'll you'll uh, you'll incidentally be, cause a lot of circling. And um, so, yeah, that's a that's part of our job is is to to um, uh, give way, and so that's what we do. Well, and you know that's a proud legacy that you're enduring here with your family and, and going back generations. And as I understand it, it's continuing forward. I believe your your daughter just soloed. Yeah, that's oh, a, wow. I'm glad you brought that up. So my daughter soloed the day after her 16th birthday in the very J3 Cub that my grandfather started the business with. Oh, how cool is that? Wow. Yeah. So uh, in 1946, when he returned as a, as a pilot during World War II, flying over the hump, he uh, borrowed the money and put on his uniform and hitchhiked to Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, bought himself a brand new 65 horse J3 Cub, flew it back to uh, Wapan and opened up what at the time actually was called Wapan Flying Service. And uh, in 1948, he sold that airplane. Uh, I gave Caroline one of her first lessons and I was doing her logbook entry. And so I said, hey, let's get great grandpa's logbooks out. It'll be fun to look it over. And here I can see that that registration number and that flight back. It was, he didn't tell a lot of stories, but that was one of them he shared a lot. And through a little, through the help of my uh, prime, uh, principal maintenance inspector for our 137 certificate, Mike Pye, he got me in touch with the owner. 
The owner was a retired FAA maintenance inspector from California, put a deal together, got it rebuilt just in time for Caroline's first solo. Wow. And uh, it was really fun. Uh, she had grandpa's uh, memorial flag in the baggage compartment. We lost my father-in-law in, -law in uh, May, and uh, she had his ashes in there. Oh wow. Gosh. Isn't that amazing? And I believe that's the that's the cub that we uh, we're doing a story on in Sport Aviation Magazine coming up. My yeah, my yeah, that's Sam exciting. Is, is exciting working stuff. with you on that? You know, one. and I hate to interrupt here, but I will say there are just a lot of parallels between the Experimental Aviation Association's general member interest uh, and our industry. Our industry was really started by modifying aircraft in your literally in people's garages. And, um, and most of the technology that's available in aerial, applica aerial application equipment today was literally designed and developed by an aerial applicator to make their job better. And so that, I just think there's just a lot of parallels between the, the, uh, the two uh, entities. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And it's a great, uh, a great point you made. And the idea that being developed by the applicator, by the person actually doing the job rather than 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 coming from sort of a top-down push. It's yeah. just, you know, I'm out here every day. Um, oh, and that actually, I did just rem remind myself very quickly before we start to wrap up here, which we will in a second, um, about how many hours does one of your typical pilots, uh, or excuse me, one of your pilots fly in a typical season? Um, so anywhere from four to 500 hours. Four to 500 hours yep. a season, wow. Yeah. And your season is... is spring to fall? Or yeah, it varies by by our location. And those of us that are involved in the forestry stuff, we get started in April. And then we're also heavily involved in cover crops. So we kind of wrap it up in early October. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, that's terrific. Well, I, I do see that we're getting uh, getting up against the clock, but wow, this uh, this time has just, just cruised right on by. <laughs> uh, Damon, this is really interesting stuff. And I appreciate uh, your patience for Chris and I being enthusiastic Enthusiastically ignorant. I don't mind saying that on our behalf. <laughs> Absolutely, Chris, I, um, I agree about this. Uh, this is just an aspect of of aviation that's that's fascinating, and we have respect for, but but we just know uh, know so little about. So uh, we're glad to stand in for an audience who also may not know very much about it. Well, and what's exciting about this, you know, it, the the audience that's listening to this has a lot of aviation knowledge and probably would find all this information to, to be the world's best kept secret. But frankly, it's that way in all of agriculture. Large scale commercial production agriculture that's feeding the world has endless stories about every aspect of the management of creating that commodity. And it's, it's simply, there's so few of us involved in it, we don't have time to educate. Sure. And so it's really a, what I consider the world's best kept secret, modern agriculture. Well, it's something that, uh, that we absolutely should not take for granted. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I don't think we expected that from this episode, but that's a, that's a, that's a great takeaway. Uh, and, and, Boy, uh, you're a, you play a key role in here in America's breadbasket. Yeah, and so well, thank you. Well, we appreciate uh, we appreciate what you do, and we especially appreciate your time, Damon. So thank you very much for coming to join us. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, and speaking of uh, thanks and gratitude, thanks uh, as always to everyone out there for listening. Uh, thank you to everyone who, uh, who takes the time to send in uh, some comments. Uh, uh, we get them from different sources uh, at our email address, feedback at eaa.org. People go to inspired.ea.org on the web and find the landing pages for individual episodes. Uh, and of course, we get some uh, some terrific uh, reviews on uh, places like iTunes. I do want to uh, do a couple of quick call-outs here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, a, a gentleman, and I apologize, I'm going to destroy his last name. It's Kurt. I don't know if it's Brunger or Brunger. Um, he sent us a note just a couple of days ago saying that uh, he's been away from flying for about 20 years, but he started listening to the podcast and uh, he said, quote, I'm super excited. Uh, and it really is thanks to Hal, Chris and Tom uh, that he is getting back into flying. And he has his uh, his first refresher lesson uh, scheduled as as we're recording this. So, Kurt, I uh, hope you're listening to this one. And uh, I sent you a note, but I'm quite serious. Keep us posted on your progress. Uh, quick thank you to Lou in Chicago uh, for a great iTunes review. To Yuri, who left us our first review on Audible, uh, the Amazon company for audiobooks. Um, and... Uh, it means the world every time we see that and that kind of positive feedback we get is the only reason we're able to keep doing this show so uh, damon thanks again to you thanks once again to everyone for listening and we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot